Welcome to today's Jolt. It's the 6th of November. I'm Sam Morgan, your host. Later in the episode, we'll be looking at how carbon markets are driving decarbonisation efforts, or not, as the case may be, so stay tuned for that. First, let's take a look at what has been happening in the world of energy and climate. Talks over a new climate fund to help developing nations cope with the very worst effects of natural disasters and rising temperatures ended in acrimony this weekend, although negotiators did manage to broker an agreement, one which nobody appears to be happy with. Jolt listeners will know from a previous episode, uh, link in the show notes if you want to catch up or have a refresher, that attempts to set up the loss and damage fund have been extremely hard going. An earlier round of talks in October ended without a deal after developed countries insisted on hosting the fund at the World Bank, something developing nations were dead set against. The fragile agreement struck on Saturday includes the World Bank as host, but on a four-year-long interim basis. More worryingly though, payments into the fund will be voluntary, meaning big spenders with big historical emissions footprints like the United States will not be obliged to donate. The deal will be examined in further detail at COP28, which kicks off at the end of the month. Uh, It's not guaranteed to go through. India has stepped up its response to the European Union's carbon border tax, which went live a month ago. A new tax plan under consideration by the Indian government would collect levies on goods marked for export like steel, aluminium and iron, which fall under the remit of the EU system, the CBAM. Those levies would then be used to fund green transition measures at home, according to India's trade and industry minister. CBAM will only impose charges on goods that are not subject to carbon taxation domestically, although the methodology for determining which goods would be exempt still needs to be agreed before the border tax comes fully into effect at the beginning of 2026. Denmark has a brand new Power to X facility up and running. A 3 megawatt electrolyzer at a biogas plant in southeast Denmark will allow its operators to combine hydrogen with waste CO2 produced at the plant, with synthetic methane as the final product. That can then be used in a number of different applications. The installation process was quite fascinating as the whole facility was delivered pre-assembled on the back of two trucks. The electrolyzer is basically left on autopilot mode and the entire process needs few human resources to manage. There is a link in the show notes to a more detailed explanation about the news, which I think is quite an interesting glimpse into how these kinds of decarbonisation schemes can actually work in the real world, so do check it out. A heat pump factory in Portugal is set for a 100 million euro investment after German firm Bosch announced it is planning to upgrade the facility. That means new production lines and new laboratories so the firm can develop the next generation of heat pumps. The investment is expected to create a couple of hundred jobs in the medium term. Bosch has said it will invest more than 1 billion euros expanding its heat pump production network by the end of the decade. So this announcement shows that the firm is very much putting its money where its mouth is. Malta will spend 1 million euros every day next year in energy subsidies, according to the tiny island nation's prime minister. Robert Abela said that without the planned 350 million euro investment in 2024, every Maltese family would have to pay an extra 8 euros a day on utilities. Abela acknowledged the size of the financial outlay by his government, but insists that it is still needed to keep the economy afloat. 
Malta used to run largely on imported oil, but that has gradually been replaced by imported gas and biofuels. Renewable power is also slowly but surely coming online, with solar PV in particular seen as a potential game-changer for the sun-kissed Mediterranean archipelago. Our government subsidies will be needed for quite some time yet, though, it seems. The United Kingdom will hold annual fossil fuel exploration auctions, the government has confirmed. Fresh from issuing 27 new licences to oil and gas companies, the UK government claims that this will help protect jobs and build energy security. However, simple energy market realities show that domestic fossil fuel production does little to safeguard security supply and that it can actually take decades for oil and gas to start flowing, if at all. The United Nations and the scientific community also say that new fossil fuel resources are not in keeping with global climate goals. Suriname is looking for international investors to help develop massive bauxite reserves in the South American nation's western region. Bauxite is the world's main source of aluminium, which is integral to many aspects of the energy transition, including clean power generation, e-mobility, battery storage and electricity transmission. With all of those applications set to increase greatly in the coming years, the planet needs as much aluminium as it can get its hands on. That's something that Suriname's government is very much counting on. And to round off the news today, a rather unusual development in the energy startup sector. Valar Atomics is a new venture looking to use nuclear-powered direct air capture technology to suck CO2 out of the air and to combine it with atomic-forged hydrogen to create synthetic fuels. Valar's founder said it will untether energy from politics. A rather bold and I would probably add laughable claim Nuclear fission, direct air capture and green hydrogen production are all rather complex to pull off individually, so how combining them in all into one facility and then adding synthetic fuels into the mix will make things easier? Uh, beggar's belief. Please do get in touch with the show if you disagree and think that atom-smashed electrofuels are indeed the future. That's all of your news updates for today. Now, let's move on to a closer look at the story of the moment. Carbon markets are something of a climate policy success story. Well, in certain cases, anyway. The whole point is to put some sort of price on pollution, so it is cheaper for big emitters to spend money on decarbonising than to just continue with business as usual. Own a steel mill? Well, it should be cheaper to electrify than to keep burning coal. Run a fleet of ships? It should make better business sense to convert them to run on biofuel or ammonia than to keep using dirty heavy fuel oil. That's the logic underpinning carbon markets, but things don't always completely run to plan, as 2023 is revealing. We'll start with the best-known example. The European Union's emissions trading system, the ETS, is the foundation stone of the bloc's other climate policies. Remove it from the equation and the rest of the House of Cards would tumble, no question. Last week, the executive branch of the EU, the Commission, published its in-depth report into how the market has functioned in 2022 and the first half of 2023. The prognosis was relatively positive. The ETS has brought down emissions from power and industry 37.5% since 2005, achieving its prime directive of slashing emissions on a permanent basis. 
It's also a tidy money spinner for national governments, as the market raised 152 billion euros in auction fees and permits. The Commission says 76% of that was then spent on climate action and energy, although the definition of what falls into that category is rather broad. But among all the good could be the whiff of a slight problem. The price per tonne of carbon is going down, not up. In February this year, ETS permits reached a record high of €100.34, breaking through the magic €100 barrier has long been an objective for market-driven climate policymakers, as a tonne per tonne is seen as a bit of a trigger point, or even point of no return, for many emitters. It is simply too expensive to keep polluting at that price. But the price didn't kick on as hoped, only hovering around the 100 mark for a bit. Recently, it's been in sharp decline, dropping below 80 euros. So what's going on? Is this a sign of bad things to come? Is the market failing? I asked Yankin, a analyst at Refinitiv Carbon, all about it. EU ETS price right hit record high beginning of this year, but in after the summer and especially in recent days, the uh, EU ETS price or the benchmark hit a new year-to-date low and as around 77 euro. Well, why the price drop? I think it's all about the fundamentals. So what are fundamentals if we look at the demand and the supply side? Demand side, it's emissions, emissions from power sector, from industry mainly, but also, of course, also aviation. But let's think about EU ETS emissions in power and industry sector. They are going to be significantly down in 2023, as indicated by power generation data and by industrial production data. Well, on one hand, we have demand destruction. On the other hand, we observe almost every day more robust renewables generation. All of these are curbing energy consumption and reducing fossil fuel generation. And of course, emissions, and which is then demand for allowances. They are down. And then on the supply side, of course, EU ETS cap is declining. The total supply is declining per year. And so the fundamentals picture uh, bearish. The demand for allowances are not that strong. And daily auction results are not strong as well. Uh, So yet we'll not be surprised by the uh, price drop because it is really the principle when you are in a site. Uh, in a cycle where economic economic activities slows down, the uh, carbon prices also goes down a bit to reflect, uh, reflect that. That's all very pessimistic, but uh, let's not forget. I mean, talking about if this will be a very long trend, uh, I would say not. And these are, uh, as again, I said, it's cyclical moves. Uh, and that's how really market is supposed to work. <laughs> uh, the year-to-date average carbon price in European in EU ETS is still 86 euro. So that's still five euro above last year's level. And why that's right in beginning of uh, this year in this spring, where the EU has finished uh, the major legislations in the Fit for 55 framework, including very ambitious reform of the EU ETS. What, uh, yeah, so all this ambitious, let's say, reduction target, even for the EU ETS. It's all sending a signal is that for the emitters, the allowances will be scarce. They have to cut emissions faster to meet the target. I think price will average above 80 euros in the next years, really, because very fast declining EU ETS cap and lower supply in the future. So, and our, yeah, even if, if we look even further ahead, our current um, forecast is EUA price of to reach 160 euro in 2030 and above 400 euro in 20 
40, less emissions, depending on the EU's 2040 target. But let's say if it's 85% reduction or 90%, um, I think our modeling shows that UA price will definitely cross the 400 euro mark. The EU is not the only one trading carbon, of course. Switzerland's market is pegged to the EU's, and the UK's is basically a carbon copy, pun very much intended, and could very easily be linked up as well. Of the biggest global emitters, only a couple trade or cap carbon. The United States does not, at least not at a federal level, neither does Russia. India is expected to roll out some form of market in 2026, while Japan intends to start trading credits next year. China, the world's largest emitter, has started the ball rolling as well. Here's Yan again to explain some of the progress that has been made this year. China's national ETS price hit, uh, went above um, 80 yuan, so that's really high, I think 10, 10 euros, uh, on strong compliance demand. And of course, there are, I mean, in every ETS, you have the mismatch between who is holding the surplus and who is needing the surplus. So it's hoarding by those who had the surplus from the previous period. And yet, so buying interest went went up. Uh, the government issued an yeah, uh, note to compliance entities on this called this is a special thing this year is called the borrowing rules, where they can borrow from their next year's free allocation. Uh, yes, so I think that had a temporary effect, but I I interpret that uh, a more uh, generous borrowing rule. It's also that the Chinese uh, regulator sees that e the ETS price has gone too fast. When you have gone from 50 yuan to 80 yuan in two months, that's a bit too fast. I mean, still very low compared to EU price level, but considering yeah, a lot of uh, uh, the reality or China's ETS just start to uh, uh, just launch this two years ago. So that's upward move was too fast. Sometimes what's included in a carbon market is less important than what is excluded. In Europe, climate-minded legislators have spent the last couple of years trying to force as many sectors as possible into the ETS, so the polluter pays principle applies to as many emitters as possible. That effort has partly paid off, as the maritime sector, road transport and building sectors will all be subject to charges in the coming years. However, international aviation and agriculture have still escaped the net, for now. Elsewhere, it's a similar story. Once the argument to set up carbon pricing is won, the next argument begins immediately, what should be included. China is also expanding what is covered by its ETS, and its decision-making might well be driven by what is happening in Europe. Well, we uh, do get a hint from the court ETS data verification and monitoring work plan released by the regulator a couple of weeks ago. And in that, they do mention all the industry sectors, but they specifically have, they put forward a very specific detailed requirement for emissions reporting from aluminum, cement, and steel sector. And so that's right, that's tell us two things. One is these three sectors will definitely be uh, the next batch to be included, maybe not all in one go, but next couple of years. And second, this also confirms our view, or has always been that uh, CBA, the impacts of EU CBA on driving or impacting China's copper markets. Let's say the sectoral uh, expansion in the pathway will definitely mirror the yeah, the coverage of EU CBA, the, what sectors are included or which sectors, uh, exporting sectors in China will be exposed to EU CBA. So that's aluminum and steel. Carbon markets are difficult to get right. 
They drive deep-cutting, long-lasting decarbonisation measures when they work, and when they don't, they risk doing the exact opposite and incentivising more emissions. More markets are going to be set up soon. It will be up to national regulators around the world to learn from mistakes made in the past by first movers like the European Union. I really don't envy the challenge they have ahead of them. Many thanks for joining me today. I'll be back on Wednesday with another episode of The Jolt. Before I sign off, just a brief roundup of what else we've got for you at Foresight Climate and Energy. Check out our latest deep dives on baseload power and hybrid power projects. They're both really interesting reads. Also be sure to catch up on the latest episodes of What Matters, The Policy Dispatch and Energy Enablers. The Jolt is free to air, so please do show us some love and share the episodes if you enjoyed listening. You can also sign up to our informative newsletters. There's a link in the show notes. Thanks to everyone at Foresight for helping make the jolt possible and shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of the jolt.